Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments, the biggest buildings, the most fabulous creations were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. These ancient wonders included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Great Pyramid of Giza, and the tremendous Lighthouse of Alexandria. Later, other magnificent sevens recognised the Great Wall of China, the Empire State Building, the Taj Mahal or the wonders of the natural world, such as the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is David Dean, MBE. For many years, a major player at Arsenal Football Club. And when I say player, he's not someone who kicked the ball around on the pitch or took charge in the changing room, but a mover and shaker who kicked butt off the pitch and in the boardroom. From 1983 to 2007, he was vice chairman and co-owner of Arsenal, responsible for far-reaching decisions in the transformation of the club, not least in engineering the appointment of Arsene Wenger as Arsenal manager. Beyond one club, he was central to the transformation of English football as a whole, a major figure in the creation of the Premier League, and also occupied in a variety of important positions at the FA and national and international bodies. I don't want to go on too much about Arsenal, but that's the uh, the ex- exciting part of your life that I've taken an interest in. You were at the helm when Arsenal won the league at Anfield, the last second uh, in 1989. Then there were three further Premier League titles, including two League and Cup doubles, the famous Invincible League season, the long run of playing in the Champions League. A golden age, as Arsenal fans look back to today, where Arsenal haven't won the Premier League for more than 10 years and aren't in the Champions League this season or the Europa League or an extra third third place kind of uh, European competition. So do you look on with sadness and regret or anger uh, at the way things have gone? Well, thank you, Clive, for that very flattering introduction that I wrote for you. It, no, it couldn't have been better. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, uh, do I look for regret? Well, I had 24 really, by and large, glorious years at the club. What's happened recently is sad. As we all know, as Arsenal fans, it does hurt to see the, I call it the slippery slope, which is what's really happening at the moment. And it's going to take quite a few years, I'm afraid, to recover. Yes. And, uh, of course, there's football generally. I mean, the big sort of off-the-field excitement this season has been this proposed uh, European Super League where the big clubs, including Arsenal still and Tottenham and uh, and and really big clubs, got together to form this thing and it was happened overnight and disappeared overnight. Now, do we look back on your golden age as somewhere where you had things done right or was what you did with the Premier League a stepping stone to just this sort of thing? How do you regard the European Super League? Uh, 
Clive, I'm pleased you brought that up because, in fact, I did, after a few days when it was announced, it was in the middle of April, uh, I went on Football Focus and I remember using these words that I I found it abhorrent, I found it immoral, I found it obscene, and it had to be consigned to the waste paper basket. So I think that was my position, very loud and clear. Uh, Football has to be based on meritocracy, not financial muscle. Because your name happens to be Manchester United or Bayern Munich or Paris Saint-Germain or Real Madrid doesn't give you the right to be catapulted into an elite league. You have to get there by merit, and that's what English football, that's when our pyramid has to be protected. So I was very much... very much against it and and it was doomed for failure all right now just going to ask you one more question i'll put in one more bit of context and because you bought if i'm correct something like 16 percent of arsenal in uh, 1983 for just over two hundred and ninety thousand pounds which you couldn't buy cristiano ronaldo's shin pads for that sort of money anymore but but that's and um even the people running arsenal at the time thought you were mad to want to throw your money away like that because you were never going to get it back or you might just get it back with one percent interest or something but yeah, I mean, I invested in Arsenal because Arsenal is my club. It's the, uh, the you know, uh, that's the club that you support from 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 a kid. Uh, I didn't expect to get any financial reward from it. I was just honoured and privileged to be in a corridors of power there at the club. So in those days, investing in a football club was a bit like buying like a big Scottish grass moor or something. You had to have <laughs> the money, but you didn't expect really to make a profit. No, no. And I think there, there are two types of owners have emerged. One, where their, their money follows their heart, which was in my case. And the other is where their heart follows the money. The new breed of owners, not necessarily have to be fans of a particular club, but see an opportunity by the club and then become fans. Well, certainly that was not my case. I was a fan from the age like you were, I'm sure, going to the old Highbury. My first visit was when I was about 10 years of age. I started in the lower North Bank and then standing and then going to the East End and then graduating up to the, uh, the Upper East Stand and then eventually into the boardroom. And that was a dream come true. Yeah, you were, you were a fan on the board. You put 290000 in, but you did make money. Uh, and again, I'm not going to over, overdwell this. I think by the end, when you sold your shares, I think it was a boardroom struggle. It was at £75 million, pounds, uh, which is not a bad profit on, uh, on uh, 290000 and other investments you might have made along the way. Uh, Clive, that was purely accidental. I did not go into Arsenal Football Club expecting to make a penny out of my investment. I expected just I was honoured and privileged to be part of the decision-making process to try and develop the club and to make it successful. All right. Well, I won't. uh, I'm just doing that by way of introduction. We may mention football occasionally on the way, but mostly your wonders uh, don't really uh, dwell on football at all, apart possibly from your very first wonder. So tell us what your first wonder is. Well, I guess it has to be, and we have touched this, it it simply has to be a ball. And it it could be a football, a tennis ball, a cricket ball, netball, it could be a table tennis ball. In my case, it has to be a football. And with a circumference of approximately 690 millimetres, yet it gives so much pleasure to millions of people around the world. I'm sure, Clive, like me, we started playing in the playground at school or in in a park. You'd put two... Four, four, four pullovers or jumpers down with a ball and you've got a game. 
And just one ball can give pleasure to millions of people. Yes, and it's uh, it's extraordinary, the history of football. I, I made a program once about football in China, and they point out that there are records of a, a Chinese game involving kicking the ball. It doesn't look very much like football, but it certainly involves kicking a ball from, you know, centuries BC. Um, and there are other games, I think, in Australian Aborigines had a game like that, and also in South America, the Aztecs or the Incas or so forth. Uh, but it, the um, the formulation of modern football in the 19th century in England uh, seems to be a, a, mar- a marvellous thing because it's gone around the world using the, broadly speaking, the rules thrashed out between the public schools and clubs in the north of England. That's correct. And of course, today, believe it or not, in England alone, the FA have 22 and a half thousand clubs registered. Include, by the way, there's three million women and girls now registered in teams uh, in England. And the women's game is coming. It's it's doing so well. It's so encouraging. And that's from a only a start really in the 1990s when we had the first Arsenal ladies team. I can remember when I went into the boardroom and I suggested that we should have an Arsenal ladies team and the board thought I was crazy. They said, well, is that a publicity stunt? I said, no, I've seen it in America. We ought to do it. I wasn't aware that you were responsible for Arsenal ladies as well or Arsenal women, as I think they now uh, call themselves. Um, so that's another innovation of yours. There you go. Well, not totally mine, because a lot of credit has to go to our old kit man, a man called Vic Akers. And he was doubling up. Not only was the kit man for the first team, he actually managed the women's team or the girls team at the time. And between us, we sort of gave it and and the to all credit to the board because they gave us a financial backing to make sure that the that the girls could have kit and coaches obviously attached to the team and we developed it and from one team there's now eight Arsenal women's team from age of eight years right up to the seniors in fact I had a brilliant World Cup in 2018 it was the women's World Cup in France. I must have seen 25 games going around the country. Every stadium was full. A lot of the games, the English games are all on BBC. They've done a phenomenal job, by the way, BBC in promoting it. Uh, And I remember being asked by a journalist after the Women's World Cup, they said, well, what do you think of the women's tournament? I used this phrase. I said, the train has left the station and it's gathering speed. And that's what's happening now. It's going up and up and up. It's very exciting. Well, of course, uh, women's football was rather suppressed for a long time in England because there was a ban on women's teams using uh, the, the, the stadiums uh, provided for the for the men. And that was uh, a long period after it had been very successful in sort of First World War kind of times. And now, of course, it's all changed. So, you know, a ball is so important. And I remember a wonderful advert from Ni- in, uh, a Nike advert in the 1990s. And it said, behind every... Every successful goalkeeper, there's a ball from Ian Wright. <laughs> For 13 years, Raseem Shahbaz Lodhi has been running this factory. It all starts at this machine, which creates sheets out of hot rubber. They are cut into a round shape and form the bladder or inner lining of a football. Next, the bladders are inflated and placed into metal steam machines where they bake for a few minutes, hardening the rubber. In another part of the factory, workers cut patches for the ball's external shell. Leather was once used to make the outer surface, but it can soak up water. 
so factories now use a synthetic substitute. Each ball is made of 20 hexagons and 12 pentagons, and there are several ways of putting them together. Let's go on to your next wonder, if we may. Yes, I, I've called this serendipity. And um, I just think that it's giving mm. yourself an opportunity for something to happen which is unusual and could be life-changing. And in my case, I'd like, if you don't mind, to talk about two particular is aspects of my life that changed purely because of a, a serendipitous meeting. Uh, the first one meeting my wife, Barbara, that was in 1972, and it was a blind date. And uh, we went out and uh, I was, I guess, I, I was in my late, uh, late 20s at the time. And um, uh, before that, I was actually thinking of, of getting, uh, I thought maybe the time was right about getting married, but I wasn't sure. I, hadn't, I didn't think I'd met the right girl yet. And all of a sudden, she came this blind date. We had literally nine dates only and then... I proposed to her. So uh, when you say that serendipity, uh, but it's a blind date, was that a blind date that somebody had set you up with or it was a completely random meeting in that sense? No, it, somebody actually had set me up, but it was just serendipitous that we should meet together. And then and 48 years later, we're still together, which everybody thought, oh, it'll only, this is, it'll only, it'll only last a couple of months. So it proved... Uh, we proved them wrong, but uh, so so that was that. The second one was really meeting Arsene Wenger, and uh, that was in 1989, January the first, 1989, and he happened to be in our at, at the old Highbury. We had a boardroom. We used to entertain our guests, clo close guests to the club or the directors' guests in the main boardroom for lunch. And then there was a, a secondary room called the Cocktail Lounge where the, the not-so-worthy had to go. That was football managers or coaches or others or scouts. And, uh, and also for a time, women, believe it or not, were not allowed in the boardroom. That came much later on. And as it happens, my wife Barbara was in the Cocktail Lounge and Arsene Wenger happened to be in there. He was passing through and... Uh, she got. She managed to get word to me in the boardroom that the Monaco manager was there. So I, I went through at half time and I spoke to him, and I said to him, um, "What are you doing here?" He said, "Well, I'm just passing through overnight." He said, "I've just come from Istanbul. I'm going back to my, my to Monaco tomorrow morning." And then I said to him, "Well, um, what are you doing tonight?" He said, "Nothing." And then the answer to my next question changed all our lives. I said, would you like to come out for dinner? My wife and I are going out for dinner tonight. Would you like to join us? And he said, I'd love to. And that was serendipitous because that changed. We got, I got to know him and the rest is history. So it was uh, just you being polite in inviting Arsene Wenger out for dinner that formed the initial connection between the two of you. It was just that. And in fact, people perhaps do not realize that we actually had a seven year we 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 had a, a friendship for seven years uh before he actually became manager he didn't become manager until 1996 but i'd met him in 1989 uh, and he was still at monaco so every time i used to go to the south of france quite a bit he would invite me to a game so he didn't realize he was auditioning so I could see how he interacted with the players, with the directors, with the press, with the fans. 
And I realized this guy was a bit special. It wasn't your ordinary football manager. He had a university degree. He, stu- he, he, he studied psychology. Uh, you know, he was a very intelligent guy and spoke four languages. So I, I had him and, you know, I thought that it was, a, I'm not particularly spiritual, but I thought arsen for arsenal, it's destiny. And that was in 1989. But, of course, we, we had George Graham there. And, in fact, we were going to, as you remember, only too well, you spoke about 89. That was uh, when we were going to win the league in sensational style that year. A good ball by Dixon, finding Smith. But Thomas charging through the midfield. Thomas, it's up for grabs now. Thomas, right at the end. An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. And we have the most dramatic finish maybe in the history of the Football League. Let's go on to the next of your wonders, uh, which takes us away from football for a moment. Yes, um, I've called it the joys of owning a dog. Most of my life, I've always owned dogs, and I've got a wonderful dog now. It's it's an unusual breed. It's a Bernadoodle. There's not many of them in England. In fact, we imported the, our particular breed from from America. Uh, a Bernadoodle is, is that a, a Saint Bernal, a Saint Bernard, and a, and a poodle. No, it's a Bernie. It's a Bernie's Bernie's Mountain dog and a standard poodle. And uh, it's quite a big dog. Uh, if we were uh, next time we meet, her, I'll make sure you'll, you'll meet her. And she's just wonderful. And she's so attentive, so smart. Well, I've given her a lot of training. She wanted, she's, I think she's actually been to university for, for, for her, her training. And she could do tricks galore. She's so obedient. And she's just a very good friend. And I think, as you know, are you a dog owner, Clive? I am. Yes, I certainly am. Um but so so apart from mentioning your own dog, it's a, it is a wonderful relationship between man or woman and dog uh, that's been around. Those relationships between people and dogs have been around for thousands of years. Um, but do you think that's still relevant today? Cl- in a Clive, I, I think even more, and particularly during lockdown, that the dog breeders were busy, busier than ever because people wanted some company and, you know, to be able to walk in the park with, with a dog. And anybody who buys a dog, I always say there's four essential ingredients when you buy a dog. The first is kindness. The next is repetition then patience and reward. And I think if you adhere to those four doctrines, you won't go wrong. And the more love you give them, they get, you get the same, you get it back doubled. And um, I, I regard, you know, people say a dog is a man's best friend, and I agree with that. And I think you've only got, if, you, if you're away all day, you come back at night, the greeting that a dog gives you is just priceless. So, um you know, and and they respond, you know, the fact that, you know, and always going for a walk with a dog, I think is good exercise for both parties, funny mm. enough. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't want to drag this back, back to football, but over the years, if you've had a dog all that time, did the dog you had at the time suffer if uh, Arsenal had a bad game or the season didn't go well? Did the dog share in the excitement if uh, if Arsenal won? Yeah, uh, well, I think do- dogs pick up the human emotions very quickly. If you're sad or you're not well, you know, there's something about it. They're very perceptive. And I would advise anybody who's listening to think about if they haven't thought about it before – Getting a dog is very special, provided you've got the time for it. You've got to give love and care and kindness to, to a dog and, you'll, and you'll, you'll be rewarded. 
and over the over the years, it's it's enhanced my life. I can yeah. tell you that. Uh, do you always have one dog at a time, or do you sometimes have uh, you know two or three or, or a pack? Sometimes I've had two uh, recently because we're now living in town. We've actually only got one. When we were living out in Totteridge, we used to have two dogs. Two, um, we had uh, golden retrievers, and before that, we had bearded collies. And now we've got a Bernadoodle, which is fantastic. Also known as the Saint Burpoo, the Saint Burdoodle is one of the oldest poodle hybrids known to mankind. Records of this dog date way back to the 1600s in Europe. But it wasn't until the 1880s that people standardized the breeding of the St. Berdoodles in the United States. During this time, breeders wanted to create a dog that possesses the intelligence and trainability of the poodle and the familial nature of the St. Bernard. Let's get on to um, your fourth uh, wonder. My fourth wonder I have simply called education. And if I may, I'd like to tell you a little story, Clive that when I left Arsenal, I had a bit of time in my hands and I was approached by somebody you probably know well, Robert Peston. Robert actually took me to lunch and he said, David, I'm starting a charity. I said, what's that? He said, it's called, I'm calling it Speakers for Schools. And because at the time he was the BBC business correspondent and he knew a lot of people in business, he said, look, I know all these successful business people. I'd like them to go into state schools, secondary schools, and where the youngsters are coming up to the age, maybe they're thinking about, do they get a job? Do they go to university? Do they get an apprenticeship? If they see a successful person made from outside, may actually be give, give them some guidance. I said, Robert, I'm very happy to get involved. He had a, and he's got a very nice part, a guy called Andrew Law, who works with him, actually started it, who I've met a big Manchester City fan, by the way. And uh, I, I met both of them. I said, I'm, I'm up for that. So they said, you know, we only expect one or two a year from you. Before lockdown, I've been to 500 secondary schools around the country, on average about two a week. And even during lockdown, I'm doing about two or three virtual talks to the to the students. Normally, years 11 to 13 is my target audience, because this is where they're going into the, in old money, the fifth or sixth form there, right? And they're going to make a decision what they're going to do with their lives. And I've, you know, I've spent my time trying to deliver motivational, inspirational talks to them. And the and I've really enjoyed it, and I've really I've had wonderful feedback from the students and from the teachers, and it's such an important part of our lives, and we owe so much to teachers. What is it the uh, the students, the pupils? What do they want to hear from you? Are they interested in the the fact that you were involved in a, a big football club, or is it the how do I make money, or how do I go to business, or what? You know, what is it that you they particularly want from you? Well, I, I, I have a format. I have a talk which lasts about 50 minutes with a 10-minute Q&A afterwards. I take them on a journey, which is really my journey. I explained how I got involved with Arsenal, how I tried to develop the club, how we develop players, how, do, how does a youngster become a successful player, what is needed, because a lot of this is lifestyle messages about behavior and attitude and being original and how to think out of the box. You know, I'm giving them messages, all that, I'm peppering them with messages during my talk subliminally. And then we have a roundup afterwards and then we'll have a Q&A. And although it's based on football, it's really life itself. 
and it's and I even though I, I, and I enjoy delivering these these talks, and I think these students do too. And it takes me back because you know we owe so much to our teachers, Clive. Um, I can remember even sixty years later. My French master, Monsieur Franou. To this day, I remember his name, and I can remember French happened to be my best subject. Why? Because I liked the way he taught, and he was unusual. He was a bit, uh, he was a bit off the wall. And he came in one day, and he looked at the class, and he said, "Follow me." And he went like this: Ursule murmure sur le mur. He said the U sound. He said we don't get that in where we spoke in English, but in French it's U. And then it was Henri ri sur le souri, and you know we learn. And a teacher today gives it, and I feel for teachers because I think they're underpaid. I'm on another campaign here, by the way. I think we're not paying our teachers enough money, and we've got to get better teachers. And we are. I mean, that we've got to encourage teachers to come in because they they develop our the next generation. Yeah. I mean, if I asked you what was your favourite subject, probably probably English was it at school, Clive? Well, that's a that's a complicated answer. Uh, for, I don't think we wanted to detain ourselves. I certainly enjoyed English, but lots of other subjects as well. I was a bit of a bit of a generalist, a bit of an all rounder, rather than good at anything at all. Um, but I, what I noticed with you there, that obviously the French teacher had a big effect on you. Your French accent was improved, and that's another bit of serendipity because that meant you could communicate with Arsene Wenger in the odd moment when he couldn't bring the right English word to mind, which I suppose would have been rare, but uh, that must have helped. It certainly helped because when you remember, when you consider going back, when the players who were coming in, so many of them, that was Arsene's you know, core knowledge was on French players. That was the league he was in for so many years in Monaco in France. So we brought in, you know, Patrick Vieira and Thierry Henry and, and uh, 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 Robert Pires, um, Nicholas Anelka, Gilles Grimandi, Rumi Gard. You know, we had so many. And t- when Thierry came in, uh, you know, we, uh, they couldn't speak any English. And it was up to me and my best A-level French to make sure they settled down. And... Um, uh, and it was very important to me. So I've got a big thank you to my French master. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful one, uh, wonder, your, your French teacher and uh, education generally. Though I am slightly disappointed, David, because uh, I, I'd got advance notice of what your wonders were. And uh, until the last minute, your this wonder wasn't education at all. It was bubbles. And I couldn't work out what bubbles meant as a wonder. Champagne, living with your family during lockdown, was it? it what, what? Just, just tell me what what aspect was it? I'm forever blowing bubbles at West Ham. There's a secret West Ham support you've got as well. But what was the bubbles you were going to talk about? Michael Jackson's monkey. What? <laughs> Wonderful, Clive. <laughs> uh, it, well, originally I was thinking of bubbles, and it was funny. I, it was at the cup final. I was sitting next to the. Um, uh, the legal, the head of legal affairs for the FA, and I was saying I'm going on to your program talking about Seven Wonders, and uh, she mentioned to me. She said, "Well, I said, think of what what would one of your wonders be?" And she happened to mention, and I, and I thought it wasn't a bad idea. Uh, her name is Polly Hanford, and she said, "Yes, uh, bubbles because you know when kids, the first thing they do, they get the little stick with a bubble machine, you blow it, and then everybody goes around catching the little bubbles, and then you quite rightly you think of you know." It's a, a, it's a happy occasion. You have champagne. You think of West Ham, I'm forever black. And we've all just come out of a bubble. So, and I thought,
thought about that. And then then also, I obviously, I have to think about the fact that I'm spending so much of my week going around schools that I really thought that perhaps uh, I, I should put in education. So that was that was the reason why I originally had bubbles. So education, the sensible choice. So thank thank you for that. Ask me my three main priorities for government. And I tell you, education, education and education. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What's your fifth wonder, though? This takes us into show business. It does, Clive, and uh, this is very much your territory, but um, I've called it the London Palladium, and we've all been to the London Palladium. I'm sure you, you've been on the, on the stage, haven't you, many times, Clive, at the London Palladium? I have, yes. I have not many times, but plenty of times. And it is a wonderful theatre. It's designed very well because it's a big theatre, but it's a very wide stage, so you can, uh, you can relate better than most theatres to the audience. And, and this, this actually is a crafty link, why, why, I'm, why I said the London Palladium. So the London Palladium was actually opened in 1910. And it is, obviously, it has been the majestic home for all that time for, for variety performances. And as a youngster, I can remember going very early on to see stars like Frank Sinatra and Danny Kaye and Sammy Davis Jr., Judy Garland, Liza Minnelli, Madonna, Bruce Forsyth, The Beatles... Shirley Bassey, everybody, and all those people appearing at the London Palladium, which is a nice, clever link to November the 8th, Clive, where I'm actually going to be on that very stage, and so are you, for my charity event, The Twinning Project. Now, okay, this is, uh, this is a blatant. I didn't realise you are going to be quite as b- uh, blatant as this to get. So what's your charity you want to t- tell us about? Ne- never mind the date, because this is a podcast for all time. But for the charity, tell us about the charity. Okay, I'm glad you I'm glad you asked me that, Clive. Pity this is not going on TV, but you can see the twinning <laughs> And it's an unashamed plug. So... Here's, I'm going to just give you a little bit of what, how I started this. As I said before, I was doing my, my going debt round schools and I was enjoying that, you know, uh, giving my talks to, to the students. And then I thought I woke up and I get my best idea shaving. And one day I'm shaving and I'm thinking, where else is there a captive audience? And I thought prisons. 
I bet the prisoners, they're bored out of their skulls. They would appreciate if I went in to, to talk to them in prisons. So I had a friend at the home office. I knocked on his door and I said, look, I'm giving these talks in schools. What about if I came into prisons? It took me eight months before they gave me. You think it's difficult to get out of prison? It's not easy to get in. <laughs> it took me eight months. It, it took me eight months before I. <laughs> you could have I, just admitted some ancient crime <laughs> that you've committed. They, they, they could have locked you up. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I. Um, well, that was in fact. I, I, I digress. This was this was a funny story about. Do you, do you remember there used to be a football agent called Eric Hall? And um, he, he, he handled oh, yes. all the, uh, the crazy monster, gang. The, monster, the, the monster. Monster, all the Wimbledon fans. I'm, I'm not sure this is suitable for the program, but I'll tell you the story. So um, there was a time when all the agents had to take an FA uh, examination to make sure that they were suitable. So, and one of the questions was, do, well, do you have a criminal record? And apparently he ticked the box that he did have a criminal record. So the adjudicator who was taking the heading up the exam process called him up and said, excuse me, Mr. Hall, but you've ticked the box. Um, you've got a criminal record. He says, yes, it's Careless Hands by Des O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, he, that's he was a, a record uh, plugger before that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you were you say not if this is suitable or not. I thought it was going to have some horrendous rudery in it. So I think everybody in that story is no longer alive. I think you could have you could have got away with anything. I digress. As we speak, there's eighty five thousand people being locked up in prison in England. It is costing the taxpayer, you and me, we contribute to this fifteen billion pounds a year. The average length of time a, an offender is behind bars is somewhere between 15 and 18 hours a day. I've seen it and I've been around all 114 prisons. I've written papers on it. I've done my research and I could see there was very little going on in the prisons to really stimulate the offenders to give them an opportunity to come out when they come out. And believe it or not, only 17% of the offenders, when they come out, can get a job. 83% cannot get a job, which means what happens? They go back to reoffending, back to crime somewhere, back to drugs. So we're going to try and stop that cycle. And I believe that football can help because all the people that I'm, the men and the women indeed, in, in prisons, they like football there. And we're giving them courses. We're giving them courses how to become a football coach, a PE trainer. Um, referees are now going in there as well. And from a standing start, Clive, we've now got 65 football clubs twinned with their local prison delivering courses. And this will reduce reoffending and save lives. So I, this is my, um, my little advert for the twinning project. I'm very proud of what's happened. It's been one of the most rewarding projects I've ever done in my life. It's a stage of my life. I call it my years of significance. And it is going so well. It's a true partnership between Her Majesty's Prison on the one hand and the football family on the other. The football family is the FA, the Premier League, the Football League, the PFA, that's a player's union the referees. So we've got everybody on side and it, it is really going really well. So we have to raise money. It is a charity. And that's why we're going to be at the famous London Palladium on the 8th of November to raise a lot of money. <laughs> 
Or, well, you, you smuggled in that long lecture on your charity by putting the London Palladium down. I thought you were going to say you've always wanted to be a stand-up comedian or a song and dance man, and you're, the dream that you never came true was being on that stage performing alongside Bruce Forsyth or, or whoever it would have been, uh, Tommy Trinder, maybe. <laughs> Uh, in your childhood well in fact that comes that's not my next one but that's these the, the seventh we can talk about that a bit later on Clive but you're right so we're coming onto the stage now of the famous London Palladium probably the most famous theatre in the world actually and I find it extraordinary because I was sitting I would reckon up about the fifth row up on the circle up there uh, for the first show I think it was the first show I saw, which would have been the Palladium Pantomime. I think it was Norman Wisdom in Aladdin. For me to think that I actually own and look after this wonderful building is, is, is extraordinary because looking after it is, is what one has to consider. This is a building one you have to pass on to the next generation and the generation after that who uh, have always appreciated this. Is, I always say that it's the, it's the kind of theatre that everybody feels at home in. It's, it's just extraordinary, and you think of the performers who've been here. Well, anyway, we've done London Palladium. Let's go on to your sixth one, which takes us into a com- completely different area, and as far as I know, not in anything to do with an, an enterprise or a charity or a cause. <laughs> You're quite right. Now, let me ask you a question. Are you a scuba diver? I am not. I have done snorkeling is the closest I've come to scuba diving, which has the added excitement when you're, as you, you're, I'm sure you know, snorkeling is you're, you're breathing in the air until a wave gushes over the top of your snorkel and you're suddenly uh, not breathing so well. But uh, scuba diving, this is the one where you have an oxygen tank on your back. You've got to believe it. And the reason I put this in, because I genuinely believe it's a wonder. And I took my scuba exam at the tender age of 60 years old. And not many people know this, but I'm going to tell you. Do you know what SCUBA actually stands for? Oh, um, it's uh, Yes, I do, actually, because I uh, looked it up. It's self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. You've got it in one. So uh, somebody's come up with that handy acronym. Yes, so that's what it is. And it's a wonder for me that I you... Was, I was tempted to say I don't know and let you tell me, but anyway. No, no, no. You d- I'm pleased you looked it up. It shows you've done your homework well, Clive. Um, scuba diving is wondrous. There is no doubt about it. Two-thirds of the world is underwater. So what are we in all our travels right on land? We don't know what's going on underneath the water. It is quite extraordinary. And I would advise anybody, I mean, you don't have to be a great swimmer. I mean, it's important that you know how to swim, but anybody can learn. I mean, kids today at the age of 12 are starting to take up scuba diving these days. You know, and and it's diving where the diver uses an apparatus, which is completely independent of the surface supply of, of air above. And it's, I mean, you're actually going 20, 30 meters sometimes underneath in the water down and somebody else is breathing for you 
And it is, mate, all you need is a set of fins, a mask, a diving suit, what they call a BCD, a buoyancy converted device, a regulator, and then you're off. It's been going, this is nothing new. It's been going since the start of the 20th century diving. But today the equipment is so modern and it's so light. Where, where did you start doing this? Is this an exotic holiday in the, in the Caribbean or the Maldives or somewhere, somewhere luxurious, I'm thinking? It, it, I have to confess it was the Maldives and I really... Uh, because, I mean, it was very nice weather. The course itself took five or six days only. You have a little bit of reading to do and there's videos. Because it's all about really safety. But it's not difficult. Once you pass that, then you can actually go for a dive. You always go with an instructor. And there's so much, so many beautiful fish to see under the water. I think it's probably, I feel like my, my most, my calmest is being scuba diving. There's no mobile phones down there. There's no emails. <laughs> you're, you're alone. You're not thinking of, you know, about, about the, the coming match on Saturday. You're really looking at... You know, about thinking about your oxygen, is everything okay? Looking at beautiful fish, looking at the coral. It's another world down there, and it's very relaxing, and I would recommend it. So next time you go somewhere nice and there's a scuba opportunity, take take a course. Well, that's, I'm sure that's very good advice. Have you done it sort of like investigating wrecks or <clears throat> looking for pirate treasure or anything, or is it the wildlife and the coral and the fish you like? No, but, but well, I've, I've dived into a few wrecks for sure. In, um, funny, a few uh, DC-3, I remember somewhere in Turkey, there was a, a crash plane, funny enough, up the seabed. And, uh, you know, you go with an instructor, they take you down and it's fascinating. And um, uh, it, 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 is, it, it is quite extraordinary. And it's something, and also it's a bonding. Whenever you go with a group of people normally scuba diving, you know, you always talk about, you know, each other's experiences. It's, it's an, it's a, it, there's camaraderie amongst people going scuba diving. It's almost like a club. So what have you been having to do in the last year or so with the lockdown? Have you been scuba diving in the Welsh Harp or or in, uh, you know, the seas off of the Isle of Wight or something? Or you think, no, one day I'll be back in the Maldives, I'll be back in in Guadeloupe or where, wherever it is your neck's going to go away? No, the, 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 the only di- diving I've seen actually is on the football pitch, Clive. <laughs> deeper and deeper, we enter a world where time and space stand still. A submarine grotto frames the intruder. Here the restless sea is still, muffling all sounds like velvet. If we cry for help, it will not even make a noise. A huge skate takes one look and flies away like some prehistoric bird. But the diver presses on to the bottom and finds some evidence that humans have been here before him, alive or dead, but human. A dark shape takes form in the limpid shadows. A barnacle-encrusted propeller is a telltale hint of deserted decks above. Boldly, our diver sets out to explore the silent wreck, never knowing what adventure will spring from behind any stanchion. We've got to, we've got to move on because we've got to get through one final wonder. Uh, so what's your seventh wonder? My David? seventh wonder, Clive, is something very close to your heart. I've called it laughter. And I think it is so important for everybody 
to be happy and to laugh. And you've done you put you've done remarkably. I mean, whose line is it anyway? It was my favourite program on television. You'll be pleased to know. And I thought it was one. It was so funny, so clever. Um, I don't know how much was impromptu, but it certainly looked as well. It- I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. Whose line is it anyway? I'm surprised. Whose line isn't the wonder your seventh wonder? But we'll, we'll settle for laughter as it is. Now this is uh, oddly enough, we don't get many duplications, but. You're the second guest in a row to talk about laughter or, or making laughter a wonder. And so I, I better ask the same question of you as I asked of Stephen Fry. Uh, laughter, is it in, on your list because you like laughing or you like making other people laugh yourself? Yeah, I think I think the latter. Um, I think if I had my life again, I would like to have been either an actor or a stand-up comedian. Uh, I've always uh, humor has always permeated in our in our household. Uh, you know, joke telling was always part of life. And in fact, even during lockdown, I started. I became honorary president. I made myself honorary president of the joke factory, where WhatsApp jokes. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Clive, you're you're, you're on it, aren't you? I do receive jokes from you uh, on a regular basis. There you go. I occasionally send you one, yes. but uh, I can't keep up with the, the flow that you maintain. So they're little bits of films, jokes, things that go around the world. Abs- some of them. Absolutely. And this started during lockdown. And, you know, we've all got a big contact list. And I used to get jokes in from people and send them, etc. And then I thought, well, why don't we do this in a bit more structured way? So I decided to get a broadcast list of the people I think who would appreciate waking up in the morning. And I made it my job to make sure Every day, there'd be a new gag of some sort. It could be a video. It could be whatever it was. You know, a a lot of them are true to life stories, whatever. But they have a humorous end to it. And I thought, let's try and make, during a time of difficulty, let's try and make people wake up with a smile. And uh, historically, I've always liked listening, watching comedians, quite apart from yourself. When I think of, you know, Ken Dobb, Bob Munker, oh, Tommy Cooper was my, who was, he was everybody's favourite. Tommy Cooper was fantastic. You know, and of course, you you were involved, and so with our mutual friend Peter Rosengard starting the Comedy Store. So comedy's always been a part in, in my life, and I've always tried to, when I'm telling, when I'm making presentations to involve humour, because humor is a wonderful mechanism of getting people on side yes so did you did you ever think about a career in show business before you went into into sugar or into football was there a point when you thought oh i could i could do that or was there no real opportunity for that um uh, did i think about it 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 was a fleeting idea but um it, it it didn't go any further than that I, I, because I, I just love humour. And I, if, if there is anything on television, humour, I, w- I want to see it. I, 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 I'd like to – I want to feel happy and I want other people to feel happy. Uh, I want it to, in my own little way, to be when during the, during the course of a day somebody can have a little laugh. It d- doesn't, doesn't hurt. In fact, when I make my – to, to relax the audience – Whenever I'm talking to the students, I normally I always do a little survey of, uh, you know, are they Manchester United supporters, Arsenal supporters, Spurs, Chelsea, Everton, whoever it is, Man City. And then I normally, and it, you can't use it today, but I used to 
say, and it, this was when Manchester United, for argument's sake, but you have to pick the team that's suffering. So I used to say, well, what what's a good present to buy? What's a good present to buy a Manchester United supporter at the moment? And I'd say, well, it's a bowl of flowers. You know why a bowl of flowers? Because it looks beautiful in the middle of the table. Well, you know, that sort of gag, but you can't use it today because Manchester United are flying better and, and they've got to do it in reverse about Arsenal today. But there is always somebody who is suffering. So what goes around comes around. We're coming to the end now, but Joe, just because you mentioned Arsenal again, just to, uh, at the end of your time at Arsenal and as things moved on, there was this power struggle that went on, the sort of old traditional owners. And then there was uh, Usmanov wanted to buy the club and the um, uh, the the Cronky family who did buy the club and and you were involved in all that power struggle. Is there is there a form of ownership that you, let's assume for some reason the Cronkies decided they didn't want to own it anymore. Uh, is there a form of ownership that would, uh, you think, improve Arsenal's fortunes? Has it got to be somebody even richer, somebody more involved in this country? Or has it got to be, um, you know, somebody who's a fan? I, I do think it's important that somebody's got to be a fan. They've got to feel it um, like I was on the board. I mean, I would, as you know, go to every game. It was in my heart, in my soul. Uh, I would worry about the club 24 hours a day. Um, today, the, a lot of the overseas owners, they've got so many other things on their, on their minds. So it doesn't, uh, they haven't got the same attention. They give it to it. And in the end, it's not really how much money. It's important to have, have money today in football, particularly at the highest level. But it's all about one word, judgment. How do you spend the money? I mean, you know, Arsenal have spent, I don't know, three, four hundred million and, uh, and don't have a team to challenge at the top. You know, that's sad and that what that is worrying. So somewhere along the line, it's gone wrong. And whatever happens next, it's all about getting the right players in um, and making sure that the manager has got the ability and I hope he has to gel to get the right team to move forward and the right tactics. So it's not easy. There's so many component parts to getting a successful team, to assembling a successful team. Right. Well, uh, obviously, your your best signing, as it were, would probably have to be Arsene Wenger because what you said earlier on and what we all know. Is there one player that uh, under your control uh, was brought to the club? Is there one player you would single out as the most important player that that started it all off or was the cherry on the cake or wh whichever way around you'll look at it? Uh, when anybody asked me who, who was the best signing, certainly apart from as a player, apart from Arsene Wenger, obviously, I have to say the Invincible squad, they were just sensational. The fact that they went 49 games, games unbeaten and Clive, we had the joy. It was our team. It wasn't somebody else's team. It was our team. We were witnessing history being made. That was extraordinary. And all those guys together they were they were strong they were men they had talent they had courage and they got on really well together but when you talk about individuals certainly initially i have to say ian wright was he the life and soul of the party he is one of the trustees incidentally i've got to have a plug again of the twinning project uh he's one of the nicest likable funniest you talk about humor the mo the funniest guys that i've met in the game he and Ray Parler, and Ray Parler too was very good. Um, certainly Ian was magnificent. And then when you think of De Thierry and Dennis and Patrick and all those guys, and we met them, we used to see them in the Danielle, San Danielle, their restaurant, didn't we, Clive, after the games, do you remember? Yes, uh, some some of the players came, some of them went home to rest. Yes, yeah, so, we, 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 so we had a good time. 
OK, well, I'm perhaps not going to tie you down to one particular player, though uh, Though Ian Wright got to, got a good mention there at the beginning. Um, that's, that's, thank you, David. Thank you for sharing your seven wonders with me. I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, uh, the one which strikes me as particularly wonderful, as described on this uh, podcast. And uh, I was rather hoping it was going to be Bubbles, but that didn't even make it to the last seven. But I think the way you put it, and for, because it included so much in your life and in Indeed, in Arsenal Football Club life, I'll have to have to go with serendipity, which is odd to have a, a sort of concept like that being a wonder. But uh, seeing as it brought you your wife, Barbara, and uh, Arsenal's great manager, Arsene Wenger, it would be harsh of me not to include that as uh, the wonder of wonders. But uh, thank you very much for joining us, David Dean. Thank you, Clive. It's been a great pleasure and a privilege to share this with you. And thank you for inviting me. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network.